Amen. Thank you, Greg. Hey, good morning, City Light Church. Are you guys awake yet? I'm kind of nervous to preach right now because I'm half awake and you're only about a quarter, but together we will show up. We're going to do some work. Hey, good morning. It is a joy to see you. My name is Gavin, and uh, I get the joy of serving our church family as one of its pastors. And uh, how many of you hit the snooze more than once this morning? Oh, okay. Well, you look like you did more than that. I, it was tough for me to get out of bed, uh, but the sun is shining. I'm this, this smile is fake. It'll catch up in about 10 minutes. It'll all get here. Uh, it is Daylight Saving Sunday, but the sun is shining, and I'm just naming and claiming that spring is going to come, okay? I don't theologically agree with that sentiment, but I'm just going to try it. Experimental. If I believe it, maybe it'll just come true. So we'll all be playing golf here in a couple weeks. Hey, at uh, City Light, we love the Bible. We study the Bible, and we hear from God in the Bible. So open your Bibles or your fake Bibles on your phone to Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14 that was just read by Greg. I want to preach a sermon that I have titled Legalistic Larry and the Sabbath Police. Legalistic Larry and the Sabbath Police. Uh, My wife went to college, to undergrad, in a small town that was known uh, to be a very religious town, okay? And so I am sure that many people in this town love, serve, and worship Jesus, enjoy the freedom of the gospel, but the primary culture in this town was defined not so much by the freedom that we experience in the gospel, but by a rigid, moralistic focus on external rule keeping. Are you with me? So it was more about rules than it was relationship with Jesus. And so she went to school in this town, and she got to know a number of the people and was invited into a number of homes, and she started to notice something common in this town as she would go into these homes. Whenever she would see or look into the garage, she would notice that there were floor drains, in the garage, in every house. She thought, well, this is kind of interesting. There's floor drains in the garage. In Omaha, we don't spend the money to put floor drains in the garage, and maybe it's just climate. I don't know what it is. And then she noticed garden hoses in the garage, even in the summertime. And she noticed that it wasn't just like one house or a nice house or two, but every house had floor drains in the garage and garden hoses in the garage in the summertime. And she started to ask around, and as she started to understand this culture a little bit, she realized that that one of the things that was very important was that no one do any sort of work of any sort of kind on Sundays, okay? We're going to talk about in a little bit what it means to keep a Sabbath, but their interpretation was no working on Sundays. That meant no mowing the lawn, uh, no washing the car, and she's starting to put the pieces together with these floor drains in, in, in the garages, and as she starts to build some trust and relational equity, people start to let on that, well, we wash our cars in the garage on Sunday. <laughs> everybody, everybody washes their cars in the garage on Sunday. The great irony was that they do it in the garage so that their neighbor won't see that they're washing their car on a Sunday because then they would be accused of breaking the Sabbath. The ironic thing is their neighbor would have no idea because their neighbor is also in the garage washing their car on Sabbath Sunday, as they interpreted it to be. And so here you've got this this great irony that everyone shows up to the office on Monday morning with shiny cars, but no one washed them on Sunday. They just happen to be clean on Monday morning. Wink, wink. And I can't help but picture God, who sees all things up in heaven, looking down on this community on a sunny summer Sunday afternoon, 
watching, as it were, through the roofs of grown men hiding from other grown men in fear of condemnation as they scrub their Ford Tauruses in the garage, just thinking to himself, yeah, that's what I had in mind. That's what I had in mind. Grown men hiding from one another, washing their cars. Listen, we learn very quickly that any religion that focuses only on external morality and judges one another by our rule keeping can be a very funny thing. It can lead to grown men washing their car in garages on Sunday afternoons. But we're going to learn in today's scripture that it can also be a very toxic thing. It can be a very dangerous thing. So this is the 12th week in our study of Matthew's gospel. We're not yet quite halfway through the book, and already we're seeing this reoccurring theme, this thing that happens over and over and over, which is Jesus comes into conflict with religious leaders. Happens over and over and over again. In fact, as I prepared this sermon for this morning, I started to get a little insecure as I looked at the text and started to outline what's going on. And my insecurity was this. I think I've given this same sermon three times since Christmas. And I thought, they're going to get bored with me, you know? And what, what I realized, however, was that that is the case because that is, as it turns out, the common conflict. The main conflict in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus coming into conflict with the religious moralistic leaders. In fact, I'm convinced if you were to take the the book of Matthew and say an an alien came from Mars and and they just happen to read English but they've never heard of the Bible or Christianity or God and you just gave them the gospel of Matthew and they were good literary critics and you said, okay, alien, um, who's the protagonist in the story? They would say, well, it's this Jesus guy. He is the good guy and he would be correct. And if you were to ask, okay, alien who's never heard of the Bible, Uh, who's the primary antagonist? Who is inciting the conflict in this narrative? They They would say it's these religious guys, and so too they would be right. So common culturally, we think that Jesus comes over and against the bad guys. You know, certainly it's going to be murderers or ISIS or Al-Qaeda. But no, if you read the text, it's Jesus coming into conflict primarily with these religious people. In fact, as it turns out, as we get to the end of the story in chapter 27, we're going to see that Jesus is murdered and crucified not by a mob of angry, rebellious thugs, but at the hands of moralistic, legalistic, religious leaders. And so this is the prevailing conflict that we see over and over again in the Gospels. And that's where our storyline has been ramping up. Jesus, prior to this moment, has been hanging out with sinners. He has been loving sinners. He has been forgiving sinners. And a group of people who think that they are not sinners have a problem with it, and they pick a fight. And in today's text, that's exactly what happens. And the issue that they're going to have a fight over is over the Sabbath. And we're going to see this take place over the course of two different scenes that Greg just read for us. The first scene is as Jesus and his boys are on their way to church on a Saturday morning. The second scene that we're going to see this play out is when Jesus actually enters into the church service and sees a man with a withered hand. And at every turn in today's text, the legalistic religious leaders are watching Jesus. They are setting traps for Jesus, and they are trying to condemn Jesus for not keeping up with their rules for not getting an A on their proverbial scorecard. And so the big idea that we're going to see come to light in the text is this. If you remember nothing else, it's this. Legalism brings slavery and death, but Jesus brings freedom and life. And as we take a look at our text today, I want you to 
understand what's happening with them and then in, in, in their context, but I also want to bring into the present and realize there is a lot at stake for you and me today. This is not just trivia of something that happened a long time ago because religious legalism is still very much alive and well in the world today. You and I may not have Pharisees that are watching our every turn, that are following us around, that are peeking into our parties. However, religious moralism is as toxic as it has ever been, and it is in every way antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, the, the reformer, said that religion is the default mode of every human heart. In other words, we all have this proclivity to sort of create our own rules, add them to God's rules, and then judge ourselves and other people according to our personally curated scorecard. And what happens is um, we will do that and we will condemn ourselves or we will puff ourselves up with self-righteousness. We will exalt other people or we will condemn other people. So too, we, we interact with other people who have their own scorecards. And my proclivity is to see people with great conviction and ambition in a world where that's not very common and to think that's a good person. And then I feel this need to attain and to keep their approval and their acceptance of me. And I submit myself to their scorecard. And when I fall short, what, I feel spiritually small. I feel insignificant. I feel like God is disappointed with me. And we're going to see no matter what side we fall on this truth of, of legalistic slavery or legal, legalism, it is absolute slavery. And that's why gospel set, the uh, book of Galatians says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And so I hope that you see in this text the anthem cry of gospel freedom and that we would reject the toxicity of legalistic uh, religion and find freedom, life, and light that Jesus offers in his gospel. Amen? So that's where we're headed. We're 10 minutes in. I better do it. Here we go. The first scene that we're going to take a look at is what I have called Jesus's breakfast of champions. Jesus's breakfast of champions. Let's see what happens. Chapter 12 and verse 1, it says this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So, all right, the setting is this. It's Saturday morning. Jesus and his disciples are headed to church. And uh, I don't know about y'all, but um, sometimes when we have to leave early in the morning, my kids don't get fed, and so they eat a granola bar in the minivan on their way to wherever we're going. Have you guys been there? Well, that's the scene. Jesus' disciples probably didn't get their uh, you know, big egg breakfast, so they're going to grab a granola bar on the way to church. And as they walk through a field, they glean from the field some heads of grain, and they pop it in their mouth. They're having some homemade Wheaties, no big deal. By the way, even that was not illegal according to God's law. There was provision in the Old Testament that prohibited farmers from harvesting the edges of their field. They were to leave them for travelers and poor people, okay? So this was in every way, no big deal. They're eating some breakfast on the way to church. Praise be to God. Everything is good. That is until verse 2. But here we go. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, that's Jesus, look, at, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Oh, brother. Okay, here we go. Now we've got a problem, or at least the Pharisees think that we have a problem. 
The issue at hand was over the observation of the Sabbath. The idea, if you're new to the Bible, behind the Sabbath was that God created all that has been created over a period of six days, and on the seventh day, he took a break. He rested from his creative work. And so, too, he set in motion for all of humanity a seven-day work week, which has built in a day of rest. So we are to work six days. We are to take a day and not work. So, too, he put in place in the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, which says, keep the Sabbath day, a day of rest, and, and to keep it holy. And so this, this command, this, this uh, pattern that the Lord set in place was meant in every way to be a blessing to us, okay? God is saying, listen, don't work every day. Work most days, but take one day in the week and don't work, okay? This is my kind of Bible commandment. Anyone else with me? It's like my favorite commandment. He's like saying, listen, take a day, sleep in, take a nap, watch some golf, okay? You can work the other six, just take it easy one day. And so you would think, wow, God is really kind. That is very nice of him to instruct us not to work every day. What a great blessing from God. But here is, as the Pharisees saw it, was the problem with the Sabbath command. God doesn't give us a lot of qualifiers of what is or is not work. He says, work six, don't work on the seventh. Well, the question is, what is work? Where's the footnote? Where's the asterisk? Where's the chart? Well, there isn't one. There's no chart. There's no footnote. It's pretty simple. Work six, don't work on the seventh. It shouldn't be that hard. Well, this vagueness was problematic for the legalists in their day because their thought is, well, if God isn't going to tell us what counts as work, then we need to add some rules to God's rules. We need to set some boundaries on the boundaries so we don't accidentally step over the boundary. And so what they did, they came up with a list of Sabbath rules. Said, here's God's one law. We're going to add about 15 laws to that law to make sure we don't step on that. And then we're going to need some qualifiers around those 15 laws. And so we're going to have rules upon rules upon rules. And we're going to come up with a whole system of qualifications and regulations that aren't inspired by God, aren't in the Bible, but we're going to impose them as such on the whole community of God. And you can see where this is headed. What kind of deep irony is implicit in this truth that God says, hey, Take a day and relax. They say, well, what does relax mean? How do you spell relax? What if relax is kind of like this? And what kind of work is, is work? And what kind of work isn't relax? And now we're getting all tense all of a sudden. And, and we've got to write books and read books and, and have qualifiers and footnotes and charts. And then we've got to look at our neighbors and make sure they aren't washing their car on the Sabbath because that would be work. But it's not work for me to police their work. Do you see how ironic it is? They took something that was supposed to be a gift and a great blessing and imposed it on everyone. And everyone was miserable. This was the least relaxing day on the weekly calendar, right? Sunday would come around, they go, whew, we can get back to work. We don't have to rest anymore in fear of our neighbors. That's where things got weird. But we see the inevitability of moralistic religion. It just doesn't work. You end up with grown men washing their cars in hiding. You end up with Pharisees working hard to make sure no one is working hard. And it leads to slavery It leads to hiding and lying and cultures of faking it and judgment and self-righteousness and pride and arrogance. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day off, a gift from God, but legalism crept in and it made it weird. Now listen, uh, I don't know how many of you observe a weekly Sabbath. My guess is this is probably not a paramount issue for many of us, but what I do want to say is that we are in every way culpable and capable of doing the exact same thing. And here's how we do it. We do it anytime we take God's law, God's truth, God's principles, God's standards and commands, and we take our methods of 
of honoring those things, and we elevate our methods up to the same level as God's truth and oftentimes even confuse the two. Are you with me? Do you see how it happens? So the Bible says we've got a command, sing to the Lord a new song. Okay? We are to write songs. We are to sing songs to Jesus. You know what it doesn't say? What style of music we should write those new songs in. But anytime we take God's command and our preferred methods and we elevate them, that's where things get weird. Are you with me? Think of it this way. The Bible says that we should train up our children in the way that they should go. Right? What it doesn't say is what preferred method of education we should pursue for our children. And so we develop deep convictions, which is good, godly, and I have my own. But anytime we elevate our methods equal with God's law and standard, and we even confuse the two or elevate one over the other, that's when things get legalistic, weird, and uh, um, things get messy in a community. And this is what happened for the Pharisees in the Sabbath. They elevated their methods with God's commands, and things got weird. People got hurt. And many of these additional Sabbath rules, by the way, were recorded in a book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah contains 39 different categories of forbidden work. Four of them were harvesting, winnowing, threshing, and preparing a meal. So the Pharisees are more than likely looking at these disciples saying, yep, you're harvesting, you're winnowing. Oh, that was threshing. I saw you throw you know, the, little, the little sleeve to the side there. Oh, you prepared a meal because you chewed. Really? And so... Um, they're probably condemning Jesus' men as guilty on all charges. So they call Jesus out. That's the, that's the inciting incident. Now we're going to see, how does Jesus respond to this? Is there room in Jesus' kingdom for this kind of living, this kind of judgment? Is this, is this what he's trying to usher in? Is this what Jesus really had intended for all this? And we're going to see Jesus sort of take the Bible away from the Bible beaters and start to beat them back with it, Okay. He's going to say, listen, Bible heroes, Bible trivia hotshots, let me see your Bible. Now we're going to go into the Bible, and we're going to do a little Bible study, and we're going to tell you to calm down, okay? We're going to see, uh, we're going to see Jesus really highlight three Old Testament passages that the Pharisees would have been very familiar with to sort of shut down their argument. He's essentially asking three questions. The first one is this, have you not read about David? Have you not read about David? Verse 3, he says, He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Okay, so he's taking them to a scene that they would have been familiar with in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel. David is on the run with his men from Saul, who wants his head, and they go into the tabernacle. They're hungry. They're tired. They're tired. They haven't eaten for a long time. And entering the, the tabernacle, they see the priest. His name was Ahimelech, and they said, hey, do you got anything to eat? We're hungry. And the priest, Ahimelech, said, listen, I don't have any common bread. I just have this sacred bread. It's really for the priest to put before the altar on the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to eat it, but only the priest. And in that moment, the priest, Ahimelech, had a choice. Do I observe the the letter of the law or the spirit of the law? Do I um, really uphold this sacred ritual, or do I let mercy rule and um, feed these men who are hungry? And we know from the Old Testament that Ahimelech said here, listen, it's not really supposed to work this way, but you guys are hungry. We're not going to dishonor God. We're going to be mindful of what we're going to do, but this is bread. You're hungry. I don't want you to die. Let's have a peanut butter and jelly. Here's some milk. Let's sit down. How are you guys doing? And he cares for real human beings. And what Jesus is pointing out is that this was contrary to the ceremonial law, but God doesn't condemn Ahimelech. He doesn't strike dead David. He's saying, see, he cared about a human being more than the ritual, and, and God let it go. 
So he's saying, listen, my guys ate a little bit of wheat on their way to church. You can calm the heck out, right? Okay, so his first argument is this. Have you not read about David, Bible Testament or Old Testament uh, heroes? Second, he says, have you not read about the priests? Look at verse five. Or have you not read in the law how, the, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Here's what he's saying. It's like this. I'm a pastor. Most people have Sundays off. I don't. It's just the way it is. Today is not really a day of R&R for me. It's a day of, of work. I enjoy it, but I had to put my pants on, show up. This is part of my role. I'm not resting today. I am working. He's saying this is the way it works for the priests. Saying, have you not read in the Old Testament? The priests actually have to go unlock the temple, turn the heater on, set the chairs out, prepare the sacrifices, and get to work. And God doesn't condemn them, right? And then he says something amazing. He says, I tell you the truth, something greater than the temple is here. Oh, you got to catch this. He's starting to unveil the curtain on his true identity. See, the temple was the place where God met with man on earth. It was the intersection of the divine and the human. And he's starting to say something even greater than that temple is here. He's revealing that he is the greater temple. The new dwelling place of God on earth is no longer going to be in a sacrificial system behind a curtain in some religious temple place, but it's going to be the man, Jesus Christ. The intersection between the divine and human is the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's saying something greater than the temple is here. And here's his argument. If they'll accept his identity, they're saying, listen, if the priests can work on the Sabbath because of the temple duties, so too my disciples of the greater temple can eat some Wheaties on their way to church as long as they are with me at the greater temple. Are you with me? So one, he says, have you not heard about David? Number two, have you not heard about the priests? The third one he's going to say, his third argument is this, have you not read about mercy? Did y'all skip that verse? Look at verse seven. He says, and if you had known what it means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Here Jesus quotes one of his favorite Bible verses again. If you heard me preach last time in chapter nine, you'll remember it was the same verse, Hosea 6, 6. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And here Jesus quotes it again. He says, if you had done your Bible study and actually read what I told you to read, you would know that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. It doesn't please God. Here's what he's saying. You're on your way to church right now. You can go to the church. You can go to the temple. You can sacrifice 10,000 bulls before God in heaven. But if you walk by someone who's hungry on your way to church and don't show mercy, don't care about another human being, you're not doing anything in your sacrifices but making a bloody mess. Your 10,000 bulls doesn't please God. It doesn't gladden his heart if you neglect mercy. You walk by one hungry person, one person in need, it nullifies all of your sacrifices. You see what he's saying? Listen, my guys are hungry. Chill out, okay? They want to worship God with a pure heart this morning, and you're going to come after them for breaking the Sabbath. Go and learn what this means. God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then he drops the ultimate atomic bomb in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let me unpack this quick. I don't want to geek out too long, but this is powerful. When he says the Son of Man, he's not just saying I'm human. The Pharisees, the Old Testament scholars, would have known the prophecy in Daniel 7, wherein it says that God, like a Son of Man, will descend from the clouds in glory. He's revealing himself. One more, he's saying something greater than the temple is here. And now he's saying, the son of man, wink, wink, I am God. 
I am the fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. I am God who has descended down. And so, you know, God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Who was that? Jesus said, it was me. I am the son of man. God commanded his people to rest on the Sabbath day. Who was the God who made that command? Jesus saying, it was me. And now you're condemning me for breaking the law that I set into motion. Not only is he revealing himself as such, as God and divine, he's saying, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, listen, I'm not only the one who created the Sabbath law, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And as we come to find out throughout the rest of the Gospels, and then culminating in Hebrews 4, we learn that Jesus actually is our Sabbath rest. He's saying, listen, what started as a, as a day off on the weekly calendar as a principle finds its culmination is in a person. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, the rest that you're supposed to be longing for, you actually find in me. I came to bring you rest from the labor and the trying and the earning and the effort and the competing and the comparing. Find your rest in me. You can't be a perfect law keeper, but I am your substitutionary law keeper on your behalf. Would you come and place your rest in me? But the religious leaders are too blind to see it. They can't see beyond their own religious games and prideful self-righteousness to see that Jesus is the very rest that they're looking for. And so they remain in bondage. Legalism brings slavery and death, but Jesus brings life, freedom, and rest. Now, before we jump into the second and final point, let me just end with a little bit of coaching from a recovering legalistic Pharisee myself. I will be the first to admit this. My natural tendency is not to experience the rest that Jesus purchased for me, but to drift into weird religious rule-keeping. And I sort of create this proverbial scorecard, as I said in the introduction. How many quiet times have I had this week? How many chapters of the Bible have I read? Okay, five times this week, five out of seven. That's pretty good. It was four last week, so I guess I can feel pretty good about myself this week. How many times did I lose my patience with my kids? Oh, only 37. Well, that's actually better than last week. And so, hallelujah, that is sanctification. Thanks be to God. And let's talk about snow removal. How did I do? Well, way better than my neighbors across the street. Because you look at my driveway's already dry, and theirs is all iced over now. Well, I must be a better person than them, because really, if they weren't such slackers, they would get up and plow there. And I kind of create this scorecard and decide how I feel about myself today between God and other people by my own curated scorecard. And it just gets weird, and it sounds funny to say those things out loud, but how many of you have your own version? of that same scorecard. Okay, three of us are honest this morning. One of your scorecards is not letting other people know you're a sinner. And so, hey, you just keep playing the game, okay? (laughs) And what happens is when we do that, where is our focus? Is it on Jesus or is it on ourselves? It's on ourselves. It's what we can do, what we can accomplish, what we can get done. And when we do that, we drift into a joyless version of Christianity that ends up being slavery and not freedom. Instead, Jesus says, fix your eyes on me, the Lord of the Sabbath, and experience true rest in my name. Amen? Here's the second scene. I want to I jump into the second scene. It'll be a little bit quicker, I promise. The second scene that we're going to see, uh, I have titled, Jesus' Supernatural Physical Therapy. Jesus' Supernatural Physical Therapy. And here's the transition that happens in verse 9. It's the same theme that's being played out, but there's a scene change. And what we're going to see in this scene change is this conflict with religious legalism isn't just a matter of Bible trivia, chapter and verse arguments, and theological debates, but it affects real lives. There's going to be a new character that enters the narrative in this moment, and we're going to see that legalism 
isn't just an argument, it affects real human beings. And we're going to see how this affects someone in this moment. And so here we go in verse 9. It says, see, that's Jesus went on from there and entered the synagogue. Okay, there's the scene change. Jesus' commute is over. He enters into church. Things are going to be good. He's going to get his coffee and donuts, sit down, and sing some, some psalms with Willie. Here we go, verse 10. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Don't gloss over this. I want you to see the absolute heartlessness of this question. To these religious Pharisees, this, this guy, this isn't a person. This is a pawn for their religious games. It's presumable that this guy is in earshot. You know? They don't even call him by name. Hey, hey, here's a, here's a cripple here. Is it, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? They look past the person and they turn it into a pawn for their game. And, and, and they have no compassion for this man. You think, how awkward is this for this, this disabled man? He's like, hey, I have, a, I have a name. My name is Kevin, and this is my hand, but I'm here to worship the Lord, and now I'm just a pawn for your little game, and, and I'm going to be a matter of trivia. But that's the reality. The Pharisees are more concerned with their little list of rules and their 34 categories of the type of work that is forbidden, and, and apparently being you know, a physician and working on the Sabbath was breaking the law. And what happens is they, they elevate that, and, and they fail to see a real man with a real disability that Jesus was really able to help. But that's what happens not only in this scene, but in our scene today, is that religious people like to reduce everything down to little charts and manuals with rules and footnotes so they don't actually have to deal with difficult and messy people. Rather than entering into situations, they just see, well, listen, we wrote a policy on this. We have a manual. This falls on page 22 of chapter 6. And so here's the rule. Do this next. And in so doing, they never actually enter into people's story. I've seen this play out in real life. And I get a little bit angry about this stuff because I know that this affects real people, even in our own congregation. I sat with a woman who for years was abused horrifically and horrendously by her husband. And she at one point in time went to a pastor and the pastor said, well, listen, the Bible says that you need to submit to your husband and it says that Christians don't get divorced. There's the letter of the law, obey God. So she did the best she could to obey God. She submitted and in so doing endured decades of horrendous abuse why her soul shriveled inside of her and she became a shell of a human being. And I tell you what, I wanted to go to that other pastor and show him the Bible verse where I punch him in the throat. <laughs> As I look at this woman and think so much of this is prevented when you don't reduce things down to just simple bite-sized rules but you actually enter in and, and understand the heart of God and the spirit of the law which is to protect people, not hurt people. And I want to take that pastor and show him a new form of church discipline, which is me and Willie in the back alley by the train tracks. We're going to introduce you to a new theme in the Bible, right? Which is called, this is my friend Willie. You should see him with his shirt off. It's not going to end well for you. <laughs> but that's what happens when it quits being about loving people and it quits being about the spirit of the law, but the letter of law. And it starts to become about external religious rule keeping instead of actually caring about image bearers of God, which is God's intent in his letter and in his law. And so look what Jesus does in verse 11. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out? Presumably no one raises their hand. 
verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I love that Jesus, for him, this is not a matter of a theological debate. He's done with chapter and verse at this moment, right? He's done the Old Testament thing. He's shown them from Scripture, and now he's going to go straight to just common decency. If you had a sheep who needed help, you would help him. And so he's going to affirm this man's value, his dignity and worth, and say, this is not an argument, this is a man. The Gospel of Luke says that it was his right hand. Luke was a physician. The same scene, the physician points out that it was right hand probably because he's showing us this man probably is unable to work because of his disability. If he's unable to work, he's probably unable to take a wife in this culture. If he's unable to take a wife, he has no children. Everything in this man's life has been affected by this disability. And Jesus says, listen, this is a person, and we're going to help him. We're not going to play the games. We're going to care about people. Verse 13, then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and was restored, healthy like the other. Man, praise God. Jesus doesn't play games. Jesus doesn't dance around. Jesus speaks truth. He came to love and serve people. John 3 said he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He sees this man. He is not an issue. He has a name. He has an ish, uh, a need, and I am here to help him. And praise God, he heals him. Our God has the power to heal. Our God has the power to save. Our God performed a miracle and changed this man's life. And here are the Pharisees. They got a front row seat to this miracle. So you can't help but think, certainly, they're going to high five Jesus. They're going to say, thank you. We were wrong. Sorry we got weird. You were right. I get it now. Um, you must be God. You've done a miracle. They're going to apologize to him. How do they respond? Verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. How blind. This, by the way, is a watershed moment in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the very first moment that we understand the true intention of the religious leaders that was to kill Jesus. Nowhere prior to this, in the first 11 chapters, had it, had it heated up to this level. But now in this moment, they issue a death sentence for Jesus Christ. Why? Over the Sabbath. Up until now, what has Jesus done? He's healed people. He's forgiven people. He's fed some people. He's casted out some demons. He's done his best to usher in the kingdom of God and show people the love and heart of God. And the religious leaders say, we got to get rid of this guy. we got to kill him. Why? Because they didn't support their structure. For them, it was never about God. It was always about themselves. It was never about the kingdom of God. It was always about their little kingdom. But here's what's fascinating, is we see the death warrant issued for Jesus in verse 14 is that what these evil people intended to stomp out the work of God was the very thing that God, in his sovereign grace, was going to use to fulfill his plan. They thought that by killing Jesus, they could protect their own little kingdom and have their own little way, and they could stomp out the work of this man, Jesus. But God, in his sovereignty, knew that it would be their very twisted plan that he would use to allow his sinless son, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross for the payment of sins, the atonement of sins for all of the world, for all of the sins of, of any rebel who would come and trust in him for eternal life. And so, too, for all of the sins for any religious legalist who would humble themselves, admit their sin, and go to the cross. By executing Jesus, cross, Jesus Christ, they were actually enacting God's plan for their own salvation if they would humble themselves and accept it. Let me land the plane this way because I'm out of time. Number one, I, I want to just press this in in a couple ways. Number one, some of you, I just realized in a room this size— some of you have, this is not theory for you. 
This is not hyperbole. This is, not, this is your story. Some of you have been dinged up in religious, hyper-controlling, legalistic cultures. And I want to say this. If you have been made to feel small by some leader who thought that he was really big, if you felt the condemnation of a community that was supposed to show you uh, the grace and love of God, but they made you feel like an outsider and belittled you, I want you to see in this text, I guess, what Jesus understands you because he was in that very same place. This is Jesus who is being condemned, judged, made to feel small, a pawn in the game rather than a person. And so number one, I want want you to know Jesus can identify with you, okay? Your scars are not unique to you. They are very common. They're not okay, but Jesus understands, okay? So you have a great high priest who can sympathize with you. And I also want you to see that Jesus was faithful to his mission to go to the cross that he might forgive your sins too. You are not just a victim. You are culpable as well. He went to die for your sins and to make you whole and healthy once again, to fill you with his Holy Spirit, to empower you to see the truth, to step out of religious legalism and to come into the comfort and grace and the healing of Jesus Christ, your true physician. Secondarily, I realize that many of us here, um, we can maybe understand both sides of this equation. I want to speak to to some of the religious Pharisees in the room, of whom I am the foremost, okay? Here's the ironic thing about sin. You can simultaneously be on both sides of this thing. Because on one hand, I feel like, yeah, I've been that guy. I have taken those shots. I have been made to feel small and to be less than. And I so too have the same person who has been slow to recognize the grace of God in other people because it didn't happen like I thought it should happen. I have viewed myself as holier than I really am. I have um, looked down and belittled other people because they didn't live according to the gospel, according to Gavin Johnson, and I have belittled other people. And if you're with me as a fellow struggling Pharisee, I want to say this. Jesus loves to forgive and welcome sinners into his family just as well. In fact, one of the most famous conversion stories in the Bible was who? Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was the Pharisee of all Pharisees, so zealous that he oversaw the persecution and execution of Christians because they didn't meet his standard. And it was Saul of Tarsus that Jesus met, knocked him down, both physically and proverbially, to his knees, humbled him, saved him, and transformed him into a man who was filled with grace and humility and kindness and love for other people. The one who would go on to write the majority of the books in the New Testament that teach us about the tender father heart of God, the gracious adoption of God into the family of God, and God's heart to freely forgive other people and not judge them. And so City Light, praise God that Jesus came to save us, not just from our sins of rebellion, which I have many, and maybe you do too, but also our sins of religion. The key ingredient is we need to humble ourselves and come humbly before the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, and receive our entrance by grace. Amen. And so City Light, would this define our culture? I know I said it in my last sermon, but I can't say it enough. Would City Light always be a place where we realize we are the chief among sinners who have been met with a grace that we do not deserve? And when we adopt that posture, there's no room to be legalistic Larrys, amen? There's no, no margin, no free time for us to be Sabbath police because we realize, listen, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. It's not about the work that I have achieved. It's all about what I have received. It's not about what I do for God. It is about what God has done for me. It's not about my religion. It's about his redemption. It's not about my performance. It is about his perfection. It is all about Jesus. Amen? Would you pray with me? Jesus, right now, We see in this text a God who came to love people, who came to stand between uh, people, um, victims, and the judgment of religious leaders who came to 
um, bring condemnation and legalism. And Jesus, so too we see in this text a picture of ourself and you standing in the middle. You are our defender. You came not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through you. And so we rejoice and say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, that you would save a sinner like me. And so too we are confronted with our own sin. God, I see in this text a picture of myself that says, hey, are they supposed to do that that way? Oh, I didn't think they were supposed to do it that way. I read the verse this way, where I create unto myself um, a scorecard where I become God, Lord, judge, jury, and bring condemnation. God, for any of us that struggle with the heart of a Pharisee, God, would you forgive us? Would you remind us of the incredible grace that you have shown us and empower us to show that same grace to each other. And God, for our church family, would that be the culture, the ethos of who we are is the family of God at City Light Church, quick to experience and show your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.